2 Samuel chapter 11 this morning. And as we get to uh, 2 Samuel 11, we're getting back into our series on the life of David. Um, and as you may have noticed as we read this passage, this is a, this is a tragic story in the life of David. And as we've been selecting portions out of his life, you'll notice that, that um, much of his life is filled with success and with righteousness. And we know there are a few cracks that start to form in his life and in his character. But, but everything that has been happening so far in his life is, has been going up and his, his life has been marked by triumph. And yet when we come to 2 Samuel 11, this tragic passage... Uh, the rest of his life is filled with tragedy. It's tragedy because of the sin in his life that is so devastating and it is so deceptive and it devastates his life and others around him. And so we need to pray. And so let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace that you have accepted us in Christ and washed away all of our sins. And though we look at this passage and the message is very simple and we understand it, we pray for your transforming grace in our hearts that we might walk with you more humbly and we might have the strength by your Spirit to confess our sin when we are aware of it, knowing that you have loved us and accepted us, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last month, we uh, were in the process of buying a house here in El Paso, and uh, we were first-time home buyers, so we don't really know what we're doing, and uh, we got under contract on this house, and it's kind of a, one of those houses that you would call a, a fixer-upper, and uh, this is not a very good thing because I am not a handyman in the slightest. I don't think that I could fix a broken chair. Um, I've assembled some IKEA furniture before, but you know, fixing up houses, that's another, totally another thing, and um, as we're doing a walkthrough on this house, uh, our real estate agent brings her contractor, and uh, our house that we had this contract on smelled like cat pee everywhere, just stinky, 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 and we go into one of the rooms, and I ask the contractor, so what, what do you smell here, and he said, well, looks like you have mold all over one of these walls. And he showed me to a crack in the wall and where this, this mold was getting in. So I said, great. And uh, what I did is I walked to uh, Home Depot and uh, what I did, I came back and I covered up the, the moldy part of the wall and I painted over it and the smell was gone. I know how to be a fixer-upper now, right? Yes, thank you, Joe. <laughs> is that what you do? When you find that there's mold in your wall, you just, and it stinks, you just cover it up with paint and you just walk away and everything's going to be okay. Well, absolutely not, because you know what's going to happen. The mold is going to spread. Or imagine you get up in the morning and you get your breakfast and you get a box of cereal out of the pantry and you're pouring the cereal into your bowl and out pops a cockroach. What do you do? I mean, I know what you want to do, what I would want to do if we see cockroaches in the pantry. We just want to pretend that never happened, put the cereal back in the pantry, close the door, and walk away. But what happens if we just close the door on a pantry with cockroaches in it? 
pretty soon it's going to infest the entire house and you're going to be sleeping with the cockroaches in your bed. Or imagine you've heard the horrible news that you go to a doctor and you find out that it's cancer. I know we, when we hear those things, we want to walk away and pretend it never happened. But the, here's the thing that we should recognize. Sin, it is like mold. It is like cockroaches in our pantry. It is like cancer. And we, as much as we would like to just cover it up and pretend it's not there and look the other way, we cannot. Because the, the message that we he, see from this passage, the main one is this, that sin grows when we cover it up. It grows when we cover it up. And so the question that David has to ask himself and we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to cover it up? Or are we going to confess our sin when we recognize it? And so this is the, the, the basic message that we see in this passage. So look at me in verse 1 as it starts out. Verse 1, the the stage is set for this tragedy. And it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites, and they besieged Reba. But David, he remained at Jerusalem. I was talking to Youth for Christ students this week about this passage, and I asked them, so what do you notice when you, the very first thing you read this, this verse, what do you notice? Everybody's in battle. But David has remained home in Jerusalem. The time when kings go out into battle. We know this is the spring, and so this is an important time to go out into battle. It says, the time when kings go out to battle, what did King David do? He stayed home. He took a nap. What we get here in the very first verse is the sense that David is actually beginning to neglect his duty as king. Now there are some commentators who said, no, that David is not neglecting his duty here because there's a time later when he gets older, when he goes out to fight, and uh, he's not so fast with the sword anymore, and a a big giant comes and is almost going to kill him, and and his men say to him, look, David, you are more valuable to us home and alive than here on the battlefield dead, so you should stay home, David. But that has not yet happened, and so what David is doing right now is he staying home from battle when he's supposed to be there. David, in his neglect of his duty, is already beginning this path. We call this right here the sin of omission. The sin of omission is this. It's that when David or us, when we know the things that we're supposed to do, but we do not do them, David knows that the spring is a time when kings are supposed to go out to battle, but yet he does not go. And that is the beginning of his cycle of sin. This is what James 4, the New Testament wisdom literature says this, James 4.17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do, and he fails to do it for him, it is sin. This is how David's sin starts out. Now, I remember when I was in high school, um, there was a really annoying kid that was really self-righteous, and he would walk around, and he'd talk to us. And, some, uh, uh, and one time, I remember he said, you know, at lunch table, he said, you know, I haven't sinned in like over a month. And when I heard that, you know what I wanted to do? I just wanted to punch him in the face, which would have been a sin to do. 
But what I also wanted to do was say, liar, liar, pants on fire, now you've sinned. And you know when people say things like that, I haven't sinned in like over a month. One of the things that they forget, one, they forget the holiness of the perfect God and how holy he is and how, how, how much we fall short of that. But related to that then is the recognition um, that you make sin really small. And one of the ways that we do that is we forget that there is sin of omission. People who make these ideas and think this way, we, we oftentimes forget that there is the sin of not doing the things that we know we're supposed to do. And this is how it starts with David. I mean, you could take, for example, the Eighth Commandment. We oftentimes look at the, the latter half of the Ten Commandments and we say, yeah, I'm pretty good on that one. So the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Now, it's easy for us to say, yeah, I mean, the last time that I stole was when I was a kid at a birthday party in second grade and I stole one of the birthday boy's presents. But since then, I haven't broken the Eighth Commandment. I haven't stolen anything. So it's been about 25 years since I've done that. We recognize that that is not keeping the Eighth Commandment. You see, the Eighth Commandment entails, the commandments, they entail positive neighbor-loving action. And so the Eighth Commandment even, it also means that we, we don't love our stuff so much to the point that we live beyond our means and are unable to be generous to our neighbors. Generosity to our neighbors is part of the commandment there. Now the thing about this is it's, it's oftentimes, it's very obvious to us when we've very clearly broken the command. It's obvious for us when we've been the one who stole the cookies out of the cookie jar, right? But it is not as off, it's much less obvious when we love cookies so much that we're never generous enough to put cookies back in the cookie jar for other people, if you understand what I'm saying. And yet... Both of these ideas, both of these, are considered sin. And it seems, in a way, such a a small thing in the eyes of David, and it's such a passing note, and yet, this is how David's sin starts. It started by the action of staying home in Jerusalem on his couch when he was supposed to be out in battle with his people. And so when we sin, when we sin, even the subtle sins of omitting to do what we're supposed to do, even that it will grow and it will spread. And so look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. So David, he, he wakes up from his nap on the couch, and he goes onto the roof, and in the ancient Jerusalem, the climate's pretty similar to El Paso, and so they had roofs that you could uh, rest on the top of those, and there'd be the wind that would come through, and it would be refreshing, and so he's taking a walk on his roof, and he looks off, off the roof, and he sees what everything else is going down, down below him, because he's the king, right? And as the king, he sits on the highest hill in Jerusalem and he can see everything that's below because he's the king and he sits higher than everybody else. 
And then there's below, we see that many of the houses that would be below them would have this enclosed courtyard in the middle of it. This is how the ancient uh, Jerusalem buildings would have been built. This, this building, this wall around it, and inside the center would be a courtyard. And in this courtyard would be a private place for people to take a bath. This would be a pl- uh, the place where Bathsheba is. She's now taking her bath in the privacy of her own home. Nobody else can see from within there. But David, being the king on the high hill in his high mansion on the roof, he can see out into Jerusalem. And as he wakes up from his nap, he rubs his eyes and he looks out and he sees, whoa, that's a beautiful woman. And now... What do we do? What does David do at this point? I mean, David, we know that you have a weakness already. So David, what are you going to do when you walk out over to the end of your roof and you look out and you see this beautiful woman and you say, wow, this is a beautiful woman. What do you do, David? What do we do? Proverbs says this in Proverbs 4. Keep watch over your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet and all of your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your feet, your foot away from evil. And the point is this starts in Proverbs. It starts with guarding, keeping vigilance over our hearts. And so... What David ought to do here, what we are called to do, is to guard our hearts because the lust in our eyes and the actions that our feet will eventually take comes from the vigilance or lack of vigilance over our heart. Because David wakes up from his nap and he goes out and he sees this beautiful woman. This little lust that starts in his heart is like the cockroaches in the pantries of our heart and they will quickly infest the life of David and of us if we don't watch for them. Keep vigilant. There's a, there was a pastor named Gordon MacDonald and he was the lead pastor of the largest church in New England Um, and he taught at the seminary where where I went to school and in the mid-1980s he actually became uh, the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship which is InterVarsity is one of the largest non-profit organizations in the country in the world and um, he wrote this book Gordon MacDonald entitled Ordering Your Private World which is basically about paying attention to our private spiritual life. And so Gordon MacDonald in the mid-80s, one of his friends asked him this question one time. He, he said this was a strange question that my friend asked me. He said, if Satan were to blow you out of the water, he, his friend asked, how do you think he would do it? I'm not sure I know, I answered. All sorts of ways, I suppose. But I, I know there's one way that he wouldn't get me. What's that? The friend respond asked. Well, he would never get me in the area of my personal relationships. That's one place where I have no doubt that I'm as strong as you can get. Gordon MacDonald was talking about sexual sin. Later in that year, he was embroiled in an extramarital affair. He said this, a few years after that conversation, my world broke open. 
A chain of seemingly innocent choices became destructive, and it was my fault. Choice by choice by choice, and each easier to make, each becoming gradually darker. And then my world broke in the very area I had predicted that I was safe. And my world had to be rebuilt. This is a call from Gordon McDonald's life and from David's life as he's lusting after a woman on his roof for vigilance over our hearts. None of us can say that there's a particular area, oh, I'm okay with this area. I'm not going to fall into this particular sin, into this particular temptation. I'm not prone to that. We cannot say that. Because to say such things is to become unvigilant. And when we know that we have particular weaknesses like David, this is all the more call for us to be watchful because unwatchful David gets up from his couch one late afternoon and he sees a woman and he lusts after her and he becomes a peeping Tom. And so what are his options at this moment? What are his options? What are our options? He can confess his sin to God right now. He could turn around and be watchful and say, oh, what am I doing? What am I, what am I doing? He can walk away. He could even man, may have been proactive and built like an extra, an extra floor on this woman's house so that he wouldn't even possibly see inside her courtyard. He could have been watchful. He could have confessed. Or he could cover his sin in his heart and let it continue to grow. And so, what does he do? Verse 3. And David sent, and he inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so what does David do when he has this lust in his heart? He feeds his lust and he actually goes to inquire about this woman and, and the, the, the servants come back to him and say, um, David, you, know, you should know who this is. This is the wife of Uriah. She's a married woman, David. She's a wife. This is their polite way as a servant to say, look, David, I don't think you should be doing this. This woman is married. And when he hears this, this becomes an opportunity for him to say, what, like, what am I thinking here? This woman's married. I'm married. What am I doing? He can confess and stop before it grows. And then, so what does he do? Verse 4. He's been warned that this is a wife of Uriah. So what does he do, David? Verse 4, he sent and he inquired about... uh, So David sent messengers and he took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. You see, when he finds that she's married, he says, I don't really care. I don't really care. So it says he sent and he took her. And she came to him. And in the next chapter, when Nathan Nathan the prophet exposes David, he tells a story in 2 Samuel 12, verse 4. He says, there was a traveler who came to a rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take a little lamb from his own flock to prepare it for a meal. And so what he did is he took a poor man's one little lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. He took the poor man's lamb. 
This is what David has done to Bathsheba. The Reformed Expositor's Commentary, Richard Phillips, he says this about this situation. We should note that the text constantly refers to Bathsheba as a passive object on whom David's lust is enacted. It's easy for us to forget how little power women had in ancient society, especially when they're given a command by an oriental despot. The Bible's blame lies squarely on David here. And so, of course, she comes to the king because you cannot say no, ultimately. And the text is making the point very clear that David bears the blame for what happens. And so do you see what happens when David has covered his sin here? His sin escalates from a lusty heart to physically taking Bathsheba. This is a picture of David beginning to abuse his extensive power. And Bathsheba becomes the victim of his unrestrained sexual appetite. You see, when we cover our sin, the lust, the sins in our hearts, quickly, it grows into action. It grows into action. Then the text gives us a little bit of context and tells us a little note. It says, after he had slept with her, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness at this time. You see, when she's taking a bath and he sees her, what she was doing was uh, cleaning herself from her uncleanness. What this means is, in the Old Testament, after a woman's menstrual period, she would go through a time of ritual cleansing. The time when she didn't feel good and she's cleaning and she's getting cleansed so that she could be ritually cleaned again. And what, this is what she's doing. And so this then, you know, after this period of time ends, this puts her about 10 to 14 days after her period. Which is not a great time for David to be sleeping with Bathsheba. And so then the text kind of tells us the very next thing that happens. So verse 5, the line on the pregnancy stick, so to speak, it turns pink. Here you go, David. You cannot hide what you have done much longer, David. Now that it's out, what should David do? What should he do? You should recognize the providence of God and bringing it to light and, and call up Uriah and confess it to him. And make amends and pray for the Lord's mercy that he would not die, which is what this man David deserved. And so too for us, this is an example when our sin, when it comes to light in different ways, we should take it as the providence of God and of his mercy to bring us to repentance. That we cannot hide it any longer. And so, when he finds out that Bathsheba is is pregnant, what does he do? He calls Uriah. And what's he going to say? Well, in verse 6. So David, he sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David... Did he confess? No. 
David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. You see, what happens is David says, I got this great idea. I'm going to have Uriah come and he's going to give me a battle report. And so Uriah comes and he appears before the king. And, and King David says, so how's, uh, how's Joab commanding everything? It's going well? Good, good. Uh, how's the troop morale? Are they, they're holding up? Good, good. How are the supplies? How's everything? That, it's good. Oh, good. Well, now that you're here in Jerusalem, why don't you go down home to your wife and, you know, pay her a visit? And so he walks out of the king's house and he, fall, he sends him with a present. So probably some bubble bath, a candle, maybe a bottle of wine, you know, make things a little bit more encouraging in that direction. But what does Uriah do? He says, no, he doesn't go home to his wife and doesn't happen. It doesn't work. And so David's like, dude, what is wrong with you? What's your problem? Why don't you go see your wife? I mean, you're here. And Uriah responds with the moral high ground in verse 11. And he says this, Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah dwell in Booth and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord, they're camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house? to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live David and as your soul lives I will not do this thing it's time to come clean David instead David says here how about you stay here another night and this time you, know, you can stay here and you can have a celebration with me. And so what David does is he says, this time I'm going to get Uriah drunk. And so he gets Uriah drunk and he's absolutely wasted. He's drunk and, and, and he says, okay, well now that he's drunk, what he's going to do is maybe he'll go home and his inhibitions are going to be lower. So this time he'll go home and he'll seal the deal and everything's going to be great. Instead, Uriah... In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. And I want you to notice the comparison here between Uriah and between David. Uriah, Uriah in his honor will not go to his wife while they're in battle, but David has, been sleep, has slept with his, this man's wife. Uriah, when he is drunk will not go. You see, the picture is here that even a drunk Uriah, the Hittite Gentile, this drunk Gentile, is more disciplined and more righteous than a sober David. David has sunk very low. And so, David, it's time to confess. You can't fix it, David. You can't control it. You can't manage this. There is a limit to your power. You cannot corrupt this man. And so, it's time to come clean and confess your sin. Instead, David's sin it continues to spread like a cancer around David's entire heart. 
And so look at what he does very next thing in verse 14 when he finds out that he can't get Uriah to sleep with his own wife and and make it look like the child is his. This is what David does. And the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent the letter by the hand of Uriah. So what's in the letter that he sends in the hand of faithful Uriah? Verse 15. This is what the letter said. So you set Uriah in the front of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him as uh, that he may be struck down and die. How cruel, how cruel, how cruel of David. He sends letter with a faith, Uriah with a letter which he faithfully delivers to Joab. And in that letter is telling Joab to have Uriah murdered. It's cruel, and though the city is now besieged and there's a victory that's foregone, it's a foregone conclusion, Joab sends Uriah, and he sends him with the group to a section of the wall where he knows that there are valiant men. And, um, you know, you can't just send Uriah by himself because that wouldn't make sense. You just, Uriah, you, you go attack the city by yourself. You go do it. He'd be like, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to kill me? Well, well Yeah. So he has to send a group of men and they go up to, to fight against the city at this really hard fighting and when they go up, what happens is that they withdraw from Uriah and they withdraw the troops and when they're there, Uriah is killed. And with him, several other of the king's servants. Look at what David's sin has gone, come to. He has murdered. David has caused the murder of Uriah and several other men. And what does he do when he hears about his murder? He sighs a big sigh of relief. And he even has the gall to become a pastoral counselor to Joab. The word comes back to him that that these men are killed. And so in verse 25, he says this to, to Joab. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Hey, do not let this matter displease you, for we know the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage Joab. Do you see what has happened to his heart? From neglecting his duty to lusting in his heart, his sin has quickly escalated to the callous murder of innocent men. And he sighs of relief. Takes a deep sigh of relief. So what's the moral of the story here? Well... I guess you could say from the beginning, if you are in the army and you just stick with your deployments, with your soldiers, you're going to be okay. Right? Well, not exactly. But the point is very obvious. It's very simple. Look, when we sin, it will grow. It will grow like mold. It will grow like cockroaches. It will grow like cancer. And so... We must confess it and repent. Otherwise, it will grow and spiral out of control. And yet each one of us, every one of us, though we know this is the truth, we think of our own selves, well, that's not going to be me. Not me. I can handle it. My sin is not going to escalate like that. It's not going to grow out of control. And besides, if you look at David, he actually gets away with it here. 
See what happens in verse 27. After Uriah has died and Bathsheba laments the death of her husband, verse 27 says, when the morning was over, David sent and he brought Bathsheba to his house. house, And she became his wife and she bore him a son. You see, he's managed the cover-up. It has worked, apparently. He's, he's now he's able to comfort the grieving widow of Uriah and he even provides a child for her. So that when she's old and so that when she's elderly, she has a child to take care of her. And so everybody in this time would be saying, wow, look at David. Look how compassionate he is being to this grieving widow. And he sighs a big sigh of relief because he's covered it up. And I know that each of us, we are oftentimes like David in this, that we just want to cover up our sins so we can breathe a deep sigh of relief. But we cannot be deceived here because after this point, David's life, it begins to unravel. You see, the baby eventually dies. His son Amnon abuses his half-sister Tamar. Then Tamar's brother Absalom murders his other brother Amnon. And then Absalom mounts a rebellion against David. And David goes on the run for his life. In chapter 12, which we're going to look into next week, explains that these are the consequences of his sin in this chapter. Though we think we will get away with it, but in the end, if we try to cover it up, it will continue to grow. So the question that I have to ask us is, where is the hope in this chapter? Where is the hope for us in this chapter? The hope is for us, it is in the very terrifying last sentence of this very chapter. And it is terrifying for David and it's terrifying for us. But this is the hope. The last sentence says this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It was evil in God's sight. The idea here is saying that on this very last verse, God saw the cover up. He saw through it all. And he sees our sin when we try to cover it up. Psalm 33, as was read this morning, says this, the Lord, he looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all of the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he observes all of their deeds. You see, God had observed all that David had done and he sees everything that we do. And this is terrifying for us, but this is ultimately the only hope that David has here and this is the only hope that we have in this passage. Because what it is saying here is ultimately my last point, which is this, that the Lord will not let his chosen ones cover up their sin forever. That's what's happening here. God sees it and he says, you will not cover up your sin forever, David. Because the very next thing that happens in the next chapter is in love, the Lord reveals David's sin to Nathan the prophet who says, you, David, are the man. It's you. The Lord knows it. 
And this is actually good news for us because when we think that we'll get away with our sin and we just want the relief of covering it, God sends us pastors and elders and Christian friends and family who will love us enough to say when we keep on trying to cover our sin, they will say to us, you are the one who has sinned here and your sin is growing like cancer. He will not let his chosen ones, he will not let you and me cover up our sins forever. And oftentimes, he will use other Christians to bring it to light. And even though we may resent it, we need it. We need it. I know I tell a lot of stories about my toddlers, and that's because I'm neck deep in toddler life right now. But also, I think toddlers give us a a, a really telling example about the Christian life in general. And so my daughter is three years old and my son is 18 months old. And my son absolutely loves cars. And he especially loves these big, fast trucks that come speeding down our, the road in front of our house. And our house is at the bottom of a hill. And so we have cars that go down the, down the road like 45, 50 miles an hour, zooming past. And we've told our kids, look, you cannot go into the street because if you go into the street, you could die. Now, my daughter, who's three, she's got the message. But my 18-month-old son, he hasn't quite got it. And I remember one day, the front door to our house was open. And the kids are playing in the living room. And I hear pitter-patter. And my son is running out the door. And he goes to run out the door. And my daughter, she shrieks, Ah! She says, and she runs after her younger brother and she grabs him by the shirt and he, she pulls him down onto the ground and he, she sits on him and says, Hebron, you cannot run into the road. And I have wondered many for her entire life if she actually loves her younger brother. And when I saw her do that, when I saw her tug him onto the ground and tell him, you cannot run into the road, that was when I realized that she actually truly loves her brother. You see, we need each other in the church. We need people to tell us when we are trying to quietly run into the road of sin. We need each other to say, you cannot do that. You are the one who has been sinning that way. We all want to quietly make our escape. But God sees it and he gives us older brothers and sisters in the faith to grab us by the shirt, to pin us to the ground and say, you can't. And we need this because we are so oftentimes not strong enough to uncover our sin by ourselves. And this in lies David's hope here because when God finds out, when God sees it and Nathan exposes it, what happens? Finally, finally David comes to repent and confess his sin. And we hear the words in Psalm, in his confession, of, in Psalm of Confession, Psalm 51, where he says this, once it has been exposed, he finally says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. 
You see, in the Old Testament, hyssop was a plant that was dipped into the blood of the sacrifices and sprinkled to wash away people's sins. And so ultimately, David's confession is, is an appeal to the sacrifice of Jesus' blood. It's his blood, ultimately, that he's looking forward to that washes away our sin because Jesus takes it upon himself and his blood cleanses all of it as Ivan read in 1 John 1, 9. It says, The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, it was good for David to have his sin exposed. It's good for us. Because God uses our exposure of our sins to lead us to the true and the effective covering of all of our sins, which is the very blood of Jesus. So let us pray.